So we're looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled his accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take the talent from him. Give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, as many of you know, my parents own a business uh, dog kennel, dog and cat kennel, where people will leave their animals when they go on vacation. Uh, my mom also does grooming. Um, and so growing up, whether it was a summer or holiday break, I would often help out at the dog shop. And it was really interesting because uh, the mo the, my favorite part was you'd see all different kinds of dogs. Uh, you'd see all different breeds, all different colors, all different sizes. You'd also see all different temperaments. And, you know, you'd have, you know, dogs that were just all, you know, playful and nice, some that were just kind of, you know, a little standoffish. And then you'd have, you know, a decent minority of dogs that were what we would call fear biters. Um, so it's pretty straightforward. They were dogs that, they weren't aggressive, but if you, you know, put them in the wrong situation, they could nip. And usually if you were just, you know, really patient with them and worked with them, you know, they would be okay. They'd warm up to you. And some of those dogs would have, you know, little things that would set them off that would make them afraid. Some of them, uh, a real common one was, you know, some people, you know, some dogs would be abused and maybe they were rescues and so maybe they would be afraid of men. Um, and so you'd have to have a, a lady that took care of them because they were afraid of men. Uh, another one that was common was a fear of hats. They might be afraid of hats. And so, you know, we would work with them and, and most of the time, you know, they'd come around if you just were gentle and slow and, and you know, they weren't aggressive, they just, you know, might nip if they got afraid. Then you'd have a few dogs. We didn't have a lot of dogs like this. They weren't really allowed at the kennel. But there were a few dogs that weren't afraid. These dogs were afraid. They weren't fear biters. They were just aggressive, vicious dogs. I remember one particular day, uh, my mom was cutting nails, and uh, there was this pit bull. And so she had me hold the pit bull while she was cutting the nails. This is something that we did just about every time I worked there. 
Um, I would just, you know, hold the dog, make sure it didn't bite her just in case it got scared. Sometimes that can be a trigger point for, for the dogs. And so I'm holding this pit bull. I'm th- and, you know, the pit bull seemed like it was kind of nice, seemed like it would be okay. So I'm just kind of holding it. And she starts to do the nails, and it, go, you know, it started to, to growl. I'm like, okay, hold it a little bit harder. Then all of a sudden, it just went ballistic. It's all teeth, growling, barking. And after just a moment, my mom realizes, okay, like, we're, we're not going to do this. Like, this is too dangerous. And so she just backs away, stops cutting the dog's nails. But even after this, it was clear this dog wasn't fearful. It was angry, and it wanted to eat me up. And so I'm holding it like this, and it's going, like, all teeth, pit bull, and it was, like, the scaredest I've ever been while I was working there. I'm like, okay, this is it. Like, it's going to eat me alive. And so I'm holding it, and then my dad got a a leash around it, and all of a sudden I just uh, jumped back, and thankfully I wasn't bitten. Um, But it was, like, the scariest moment that I ever had working there, and the reason was... Both me and my mom didn't realize that this dog was aggressive. You know, it seemed like maybe it was a fear biter. We didn't realize it was aggressive. And when we read this story, I think sometimes we make a a little mistake when we interpret it. Because maybe we read our emotions into the story or, you know, maybe take the servant's words at face value. And we assume that this, this servant is kind of driven by fear. Like that's his emotion that's driving his behavior. So just to recap uh, this story, the servant, uh, this master goes on a long journey. He gives these three servants different amounts. He gives one servant five talents, one servant two talents, one servant one talent. Then after he comes back, the one that has five talents increases uh, it to have five more talents, so he has ten talents. The one that has two talents increases it so that it's up to four talents. But then the one that has one uh, goes and buries the treasure. And then when he comes back, he's confronted by this. And the servant says this, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now, maybe we read this story, and maybe we take his words at face value, and it's like we feel a little bit sorry for the guy. I mean, it seems on the surface like he's just being financially conservative, right? I mean, even if he would have, you know, we think about, you know, for us, investing in a bank, that's a pretty sure bet. You know, it's secured up to $250,000 by the FDIC, and so it's a pretty sure bet to put it in the bank. But in that day and age, even to put money with the bankers, the bankers were notoriously corrupt, and so it was by no means a sure bet. It was very risky to put it with the bankers. And so really, he's doing the safest thing imaginable in burying this, this talent, And so maybe when we look at it on the surface, it looks like, okay, he's just being financially conservative. He just doesn't want to lose anything that the master has given him. And so it seems like the best thing to do if you're financially conservative. But I don't think that's what's happening at all. This servant is described by the master as wicked, slothful. He's a scoundrel. See, why did the master give the talents to the servants? He gave them to invest. If he wanted to just bury the treasure, if he wanted the safest possible option, he could have buried it himself. Uh, In fact, he wouldn't have had to include the servants at all, and that probably would have been the best thing to do, to include the least number of people. 
So he could have just buried it, went on his way. He wouldn't have needed the servants at all. He gives it to the servants to invest. Some of us, maybe we go to a financial advisor, and uh, they help us with you know, retirement or investments. And if you, if you don't go to one, if you need one, talk to Steve Davis, our treasurer. Uh, just kidding. He's, he doesn't do that. But he's, he knows a lot of finance stuff. He's a good guy. Um, but imagine you go to someone like that and, you know, you're like, okay, I want to invest. I want to save up for retirement. And they tell you, okay, all you need to do is, you know, give me a check each month and whatever you give me, I'm just going to invest it. And, you know, then you get 20, 30 years down the road and you're going to be set for retirement. And so you do that. You're like saving consistently and you're doing it over a period of years, and you don't even want to look at, like, how much money you're returning, you're making because, you know, you know the market goes up and down. And you're not really concerned about that. You're concerned about, like, the long-term growth and having enough money for retirement. But let's say you do it consistently for maybe 20 years, 25 years. You give a check every single month, and you don't know how much money you've made, but you do know how much money you've put in. Let's say you put in $100,000. And you have that record, okay, I put in $100,000, and finally you look at your statement and say, like, how much has this grown to? And then you open up your statement, and you look, and it says, total interest earned, $0. Total return, total gain, $0. You're confused. You've been investing all this money for this long period of time. And so you go to the, the advisor, and you say, what's the deal? I mean, there must be some mistake here. Like, I've been giving this money consistently, and yet it shows no interest, no return, no growth. And then imagine the advisor says, well, you seem like a pretty tough cookie when we first met, and I was a little bit scared of losing your money. I didn't want you to be angry. So I decided I wasn't going to do anything with that money. In fact, I took that money and I put it in a safe at my house. And I, make sure, I made sure I protected it, made sure nothing happened to it, and if you ever need it, just call me up and you can get that money. You'd be pretty angry because you didn't give that to that person to keep in a safe in their house. You could have put it in a bank, you could have put it in mutual funds, you could have put it in a number of other places, but you entrusted it to this individual with the expectation that it was going to be invested. And I think that's what's happening in this passage. The master gives the servant an incredible amount of money to invest, but he doesn't invest it. He just hides it, buries it in the ground. But then the, the question is, oh, so if he buries it in the ground, it's obviously not a good thing to do. Why does he, why does he do so? I, I think the, the text indicates a few different reasons why he might have done this. I think that the servant misunderstands a lot of things about this situation. Like, for example, like if what he's saying is true, if the master is really a hard man, reaping where he does not uh, sow, gathering where he does not scatter, how should he respond to this master? Let's say you have a really tough boss, a boss that requires a lot from you, that has really high expectations, that's not afraid to, to call you out on something. How are you going to respond to that? You're going to probably respond by working harder, making sure you don't disappoint them. And so it's clear in this, he's not afraid. It's not that he fears the master. If he feared the master, 
he would want to make the master happy. So why is he doing this? Why does he hide the treasure? I think there's a couple reasons. Three reasons. The first is the servant is selfish. The master suggests that he's wicked and slothful. The Greek word for slothful is translated by one dictionary as pertaining to shrinking from or hesitating to engage in something worthwhile. I think that his attitude is, why would I invest in something that's not going to give me something in return? Why would I work hard for the master when the master is just going to take it from me? In other words, what's in it for me? He doesn't think there's anything to be gained in serving the master. In short, he's a lover of self rather than a lover of the master. He doesn't choose to deny himself for the sake of the master. Last year, I uh, went on a road trip with my family, and on this one particular day, we were gonna, it was on the way home, and we were going to be driving uh, quite a while. I think it was like eight or ten hours in the day. And so we tried to like break it up by stopping at some places. And my parents had told me about this place called Bucky's. Anybody ever been to Bucky's before? A few of us? Well, if you've never been to Bucky's before, um, it's called a gas station, but it's kind of a blend of a gas station, a restaurant, a Hobby Lobby, and a Walmart. I mean, you never know what you're going to find in there. It's ginormous. There's hundreds of people, like literally like probably 50 different gas station, um, you know, places where you get gas. I mean, it's huge. And we had never been there before, and so we decided we're going to stop there. It was about two and a half hours into our journey. It's just going to kind of break it up, get us some food and whatnot. So we get there, and then we uh, walk in, and Stephanie had to go to the bathroom. And then I said to Paul, do you want to go take a look around? And so we went around and looked at the toys, and he looked at these, um, you know, at the books, and he wasn't really interested in the books. And then he's, he's looking around, he sees this um, trailer, tra- truck, trailer a truck that has uh, a cow in it, and he loves animals, and he looks at it, he's just mesmerized by this truck, and he goes over and he picks it up, and he says, Daddy, can I get this? And I looked at the price tag, and it was $50, and this is on the way back from vacation, I said, no, Paul, we're not getting this $50 truck. And he says, please please, Danny. No, Paul, we're not getting this $50 truck. And so, Paul, okay, let's go look at some other things. But he's holding on to that truck. Like, okay, Paul, let's put it back. No, I want it. I want it. And so I go and finally have to take it out of his arms. And then he's, I want it. I want it. And he's getting more and more angry to the point where I said, Paul, we got to go. We're going out to the car. And so I grab him, pick him up, he's flailing about, and there's hundreds of people around, and he's just screaming, I want it, I want it, I want it, all the way out as everyone is looking at me, the most embarrassing moment I've ever had as a parent. And then we get to the car, and he ate something, and then a few minutes later, he's like, oh, hi, Daddy, hi. But that's, I mean, that's traveling on a road trip with a three-year-old, and that's kind of, you know, that mindset, that selfish mindset that a three-year-old has. But I think that, you know, in our culture, you know, we don't put it like that, but I think there's this underlying current that our culture perpetuates of selfishness that what is most important is what I want. Like, what I want supersedes 
everything else. It's ironic, as I was doing some research for this sermon, I came across some really interesting articles and an interesting book um, that kind of shows that we're not even hiding it anymore, that we're almost celebrating selfishness. I found an article from Forbes magazine from a few years ago, and it was entitled, Six Ways That Being Selfish Can Make You Successful. Uh, I found an article from the New York Times last January entitled, The Benefits of Being Selfish. And a new book that was just released this year a couple months ago that was entitled, Effective Egoism, Making the Case for Selfishness. I mean, we're at a point where we're not even hiding it anymore. We're celebrating selfishness that, you know, it's okay to, like, want what you want. That, like, putting your needs first is, is really a good thing. And that, that, that your needs can sometimes supersede other people's needs. And, and so we live in a culture where selfishness is sometimes celebrated. And kind of when we're selfish, when that is perpetuated, you know, it becomes like those base desires, those deepest motives of I want it become most important. Um, Charles Finney, the great revivalist, once said this, Selfishness consists in dethroning reasons from the seat of government and enthroning blind desire in opposition to it. Selfishness is always and by necessity unreasonable. It is the denial of that divine attribute that that allies human beings to God and makes us capable of virtue. Selfishness dethrones reason and sinks human beings to the level of brute. And so the fundamental question for this servant is, what's in it for me? And he comes with a realization, like, why would I work so hard to get somebody else so rich? And so he doesn't. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The, first, the servant in this passage is the one who would save his life. Why risk it for someone else? And so... The first reason I think that the, steward, the, the servant doesn't steward the, the resources of the master is because he's selfish. It's what's in it for me. But the second reason, I think, is that he fears the wrong things. What is the servant's biggest fear? The servant's biggest fear is that he would work hard, that he would put in the effort, and then the master would come and take away what was his. That he, his efforts would be wasted. That he wouldn't receive the compensation that he deserved for what he's done. And that he would be disappointed. And this is true for many in our culture that the things that we work the hardest for, that our greatest fear is the things that we work the hardest for or value the most will be taken away. And we see that the servant's problem is not that he's too fearful, it's that he's fearful of the wrong things. He's fearful of earthly loss rather than disappointing the master. The thing he should be fearing is that the master will come back and he will have squandered his opportunity or resources. But he doesn't, he's not concerned about those things. Jesus again says this in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Let me give you an illustration of, of how that plays out in everyday life. Um, in Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, he tells a story about a couple, true story about a couple from Washington, D.C. And they come to their pastor and they said hey I was wondering if you could talk to our daughter she's decided that she feels like God is calling her to be a missionary overseas and the pastor said that that's wonderful that's great 
But they continued and said, oh, you misunderstand. We want you to help us talk her out of ruining her life. That, that's fearing the wrong thing. That's fearing earthly loss rather than heavenly reward. That's fearing the things of man rather than fearing God. And that's what this servant does in this passage. He fears the wrong things. He feels, fears earthly loss, that I'll put in all this effort, that I'll work, and then it will be taken away from me, rather than fearing the master and respecting him. But I think there's a third reason that the, ma- that the servant hides the talent. And that is that he misunderstands the master, and he misunderstands himself. Again, the servant's characterization of the master is that he's a hard man, reaping where he does not sow, gathering where he doesn't scatter seed. But before this servant is introduced, if you would just look at the master on a face value without the servant's you know, description of him, the master seems incredibly gracious, incredibly generous. I mean, the master entrusted the servants incredible wealth. Uh, a talent, you know, we, we think about a talent and we don't, sometimes we don't equate to what it means today. It was basically like a life savings, the amount that you would earn your entire life. And so even the servant that's given one talent, he's entrusted with incredible wealth. And so we see that the master is incredibly gracious and he gives this incredible commendation to both the servant that increased uh, five talents and increased two talents. It didn't matter how much they increased. They both are given the same commendation. And after that, they're invited to share into the joy of the master, come into the joy of the master. It's not like, hey, you're a servant, just give me what's mine. It's, hey, you've increased what I've given you, and I want you to come and enjoy it for yourself. And so apart from this this wicked servant's description of the master, we would look at this story and think, he's incredibly gracious. But of course... The servant doesn't see it this way. What he doesn't realize is that the way that he characterizes the master, it's a better reflection of himself than it is of the master. That is, he's the one who is a hard man, reaping where he did not sow, gathering where he scattered no seed. I mean, in this passage, it's the servants that are given the resources. They're given the ability to gather where they didn't scatter, to reap what they didn't sow. And and this man, is this servant, is the one that's a hard man. He's the one that's calculating, like, what's in it for me? Is this worth putting any effort in? And so while he describes the master as being a hard man, reaping where he didn't sow, gathering where he didn't scatter, that's really him. He's reflecting on the master what is truly a characteristic of himself. And the master is nothing like what the servant characterizes him. And I believe the master refers to Jesus in this passage. And we see in the scriptures that the master is not selfish. In Philippians 2, 4 to 8, it says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The master's heart is good. He only wants what's good for the servants. 
We see also that Jesus, the master, doesn't fear the wrong things. When Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's in anguish. He knows the horrors that are awaiting him. But he would rather go to the cross than displease the Father. He would rather go to the cross than lose his children. And so in Luke twenty-two forty-two, it says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The servant doesn't realize the heart of the master. He doesn't realize that the things he's projecting on the master are really true of himself. And I think that's the biggest problem that we see in the, with the servant in this passage. I mean, he's got three problems. He's selfish. He fears the wrong thing. But really, the root problem is he doesn't understand the master. He misunderstands the master's heart. And, and if he's going to change, then that third problem needs to be fixed. Because, you know, if he doesn't understand who the master is, of course he's going to be selfish. Of course he's going to fear the wrong things. And some of us today, maybe in some ways we're like that servant. And the reason is that we have a skewed view of God and a skewed view of ourselves. Great um, Christian Missionary Alliance theologian A.W. Tozer once said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You know, sometimes when we think about God, it's like we feel like serving God, being on God's presence is like a duty. It's like, okay, we got to put in our time with him. You know, we got to go to church. You know, maybe we have to tithe. You know, we have to make sure we behave. And, and you know, we think it's like it's all about giving. It, it's all about God taking from us. That we have our stuff and then God takes some of it away from us. And it's hard to serve a God like that. Well, I mean, it's actually, you can serve a God like that, but it's harder to love a God like that. A God that's always taking from you. But that's not the God we see in the Scripture. We see in the Scripture a God who gives. Who gives everything to us. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God has graciously given us the gift of his son so that we might have life. And he gives us these lives to steward for him. He gives us opportunities, resources, relationships, everything that we have to use for his glory. Everything that we are and everything that we have is because of him, because of his grace. He doesn't want to take from us. He's given everything to us. And yes, does he call us to give back some of that to him as a, as a, as a sign of worship? Sign of gratitude, yes. But he's the one who's given us everything. Now, some of us, we might say, well, I've, I've worked hard for what I have. And that may be the case. But there's other people that have maybe worked just as hard or maybe even harder than we have worked, but are not blessed like we have been blessed. Or there may be other people that maybe, you know, have done the same things, maybe made the same mistakes that we've made, and those mistakes have really cost them a lot more than they've costed us. So everything that we have is a gift of God. And so if we're going to view God rightly, we need to realize that. We need to realize that, hey, God is not one who comes and says, hey, give me what you have. He doesn't come to take. He comes to give us life and life abundantly. And it's important that we realize that because if we feel like God is going to take stuff from us, then we become pr protective, we become preoccupied with ourselves, and ultimately we squander the resources that God has given us. 
David Brooks writes this, a New York Times author. He says, self-preoccupied people have trouble seeing that their talents come from outside themselves and can only be developed when directed towards something else outside themselves. Enclosed in self, they come to believe that their talents come from self and are for themselves. Locked in a cycle of insecurity and self-validation, their talents are never enough, and they end up devouring what they have been given. So our gifts are not from ourselves for ourselves. Our gifts are from God and for God. And the criterion by which we're going to be judged is not like how much do we have. It's how faithful have we been with what we've been given. He gives to each of us differently. He doesn't judge us based upon how many talents he gives us. He judges us based upon what do we do with those talents. Andrew Murray, the great Puritan writer, once said this, the world asks, what does man own? Christ asks, how does he use it? And some of us today, as we close, maybe we don't know Jesus, and maybe if we looked at our lives, it's kind of a little bit like this servant in this passage. We're just kind of focused on ourselves, our own pursuits. We don't fear the right things. We fear, you know, mainly earthly loss. We fear the things of man. And maybe we have this view of God that God is, is out to get us, that God wants to take from us. Maybe we don't realize that the things we have are a gift from God. If that's you today, look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Because we see in the cross, we see Jesus, the meekness and the mildness of Jesus as he dies on the cross. And he dies so those who didn't sow could reap. Those who didn't scatter could gather. So that we might have life and have that life abundantly. Others of us, maybe we're believers. And maybe in some ways we've forgotten the God that we serve. Maybe we've become a little bit like this servant in some ways in our life. Maybe we've become a little bit self-protective. Maybe we've start to, started to focus on the things of man rather than the things of God. Maybe these, the, you know, the fear of earthly loss has kind of taken over our radar, taken over control of our life. And rather than stewarding what God has given us, we end up just kind of looking like the world, simply doing what the world does. And if that's you today, this prescription is the same. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who gave everything for us. Look to the one who wasn't selfish. Who laid down his life. Who denied himself so that we might have life. Look to the one who feared God. Feared the Father. Respected him. Didn't fear the cross. From an earthly standpoint, of course, it brought him sorrow. He knew what was coming, but he feared God rather than earthly loss because he knew the heart of the Father. He knew the love of God, and he knew what God was going to do. I think God's heart is for each of us that we'd be able to share in his joy, the joy of the Master. And each day we have a responsibility. Each day we've been given a gift. Each day we've been given a stewardship. He's given us different responsibilities different jobs, different resources, different relationships. But he's entrusted each and every one of us with different things. And the question is, are we going to be found faithful? Are we going to be found faithful when he returns? Because the truth is, he's coming soon. So I'll close with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. It says this, Be very careful 
then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are a God who gave, that you left your throne room in heaven, came to the earth to die on the cross for those who were undeserving, Lord. That you, through your sacrifice on the cross, allowed those who have not sowed to reap, who have not scattered to gather. We thank you that you've given us so many things. We know that everything that we have and everything that we are is a gift of your grace. Help us to never forget who you are. Help us to never forget that you're not a God who longs to take from us, but you're a God who came to give everything for us so that we might find life in you. Lord, as we begin this new year, Lord, help us to be found faithful in the avenues of life that you've placed us in, Lord, with our relationships, with our jobs, with our finances, everything that we have, Lord. May we steward it this year and be faithful to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.